the scripture reading for today is from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning, the living expression was already there. And the living expression was with God, yet fully God. They were together, face to face, in the very beginning. And through his created inspirations, this living expression made all things. For nothing has experience apart from him. A fountain of life was in him. For his light was for all humanity. And this light never fails to shine through darkness. Light that darkness cannot overcome. Suddenly, a man appeared who was sent from God, a messenger named John. For he came as a witness to point the way, the light of life, and to help everyone believe. John was not the light, but he came to show who was, or is. For he was merely a messenger to speak the truth about the light. For the perfect light of truth was coming into the world and shine upon everyone. He entered into the world he created, yet the world was unaware. He came to the people he created, to those who should have recognized him, but they did not recognize him. But those who embraced him and took hold of his name, he gave the authority to become the children of God. He was not born by the joining of human parents, or from natural means, or by a man's desire, but he was born of God. And so the living expression became a man's and lived among us. We gazed upon his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father overflowing with tender mercy and truth. John announced the truth about him when he talked to people. He's the one. He's the one I've been telling you who would come after me, even though he ranks far above me because he existed before I was born. And from the overflow of his fullness, he received grace headed upon more grace. Moses gave us law, but Jesus, the anointed one, unveils the truth wrapped in tender mercy. No one ever before gazed upon the full splendor of God, except his uniquely beloved son, who is cherished by the Father and is held close to his heart. Now that he has come to us, he has unfolded the full explanation of who God truly is. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for hanging out with me for a little while today. My name is Mandy Campton. I'm uh, part of the formation team here at Imago, um, and also the newly formed teaching team. Um, so today, we're going to talk a little bit about the idea of incarnation. And to start that, I just want to tell you a little bit of my history with Christmas. It's um, kind of a complicated history. Uh, I grew up in a pretty toxic home um, as a child. Uh, there was a lot of dysfunction and addiction and things like that. Uh, there was something about December, though, and I don't really know where this came from, but my family would put on this kind of glossy veneer, and my mom would go uh, extra crazy with decorating the house and lots of cooking, and um, we were a pretty poor family, and they would go very much into debt to by an insane amount of gifts. Um, and something about seeing that as I grew made the whole concept of cultural Christmas feel very just false. Um, because I knew what was happening behind the scenes, you know. And 
half of the time the cops would end up at family gatherings and it was just the contradiction um, hit me at a pretty young age. And so I was already cynical well before a person should be cynical about something like Christmas. Um, I came into the church when I was 15, 16 years old and uh, came into a church that was very warm and there were a lot of spiritual orphans there who were teenagers like myself. Um, and so I learned to find family and community within the churches that I was a part of. Um, I was single my uh, entire adult life until I was 36. Um, and there is something extra challenging about being single in the church during the holidays. Um, there's the cultural pressure outside, you know, to have all of the family gatherings and, and all of that. And then you see that reflected in the church as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with children's programs. And I mean, all of that stuff is great. But if you don't have those things, um, it can feel extra alienating. And during that time of year, the people that were my community, that were my found family, um, that was the time of year where they kind of faded out because they had family obligations. They had things that they needed to go to, people they needed to connect with. But I didn't have a family to retreat to. They were my family. And so my community would shrink during that time of year. And I tried to be a good sport. I tried to come up with my own traditions. Um, I always loved the idea of having a Christmas tree that was full of like handmade decorations. But I don't have children, and so I would buy my decorations from the Dollar Tree because they looked handmade. Or <laughs> just do, you know, I had a girls' day where all of my female friends at some point during December, I would tell them, come write your Christmas cards. You can bake cookies in my oven. We'll watch Saturday Night Live, Christmas, and, you know, the Christmas cottage from Hallmark, whatever, and I would kind of make a day of it. But at the end of the day, those things also kind of rang hollow. They also felt false. It was a different kind of false. There was a genuine need that I was trying to fill, but it, it, didn't, it didn't meet that. And so I couldn't resonate with cultural Christmas. I couldn't resonate with um, Christian Christmas. And so I kind of had come to this place or was always in this place where it was like, I understood Easter. Easter was my favorite time of year. I can blow out Holy Week, all sorts of, you know, sad stuff and dark stuff and then happy stuff. Like, I can, I can really make a, a, a time of that. And so for me, it was like, well, okay, like, yeah, I get that he was born, but that was, that, that's just how we got to the important stuff, the life, the death, the resurrection. And I didn't ever really get why Christmas was such a big deal. So um, in the midst of, of all of this, in 2008... I was part of an ecumenical prayer group that would meet at a monastery um, here near Peoria. The brothers there, um, I had connected with them through Bradley because they were very involved on Bradley campus at the time. I was a young adults pastor and we had connected and, and just kind of tried to find ways to, to bring their Catholic community and my Protestant community together to see how we could pursue faith together based on what we had in common. And so we had come up with this uh, once a month prayer group. We would meet at 8 o'clock at their chapel. We would have a theme for the, for the month. Um, and we would find scripture passages. And we would read a passage, have some silence, sing a refrain, have some silence, read another passage. And it was an hour of that. Very meditative, very contemplative. It was my first foray into those things. I loved it. 
Um, that December, I do not remember what the theme was, but I remember we had our, our little discussion about St. Augustine or, or whatever reading we were talking about. And then as we filed into the chapel, um, it, it's a stone and wood chapel. It's saturated with the sense of cedar and incense. It would only be lit by candlelight. It was always kind of chilly, even in the summer. And I just came to associate kind of that aesthetic with this unique sense of God's presence. And so I walked in like we had been doing for months and months and months, and I took my place near the front, picked my little hard kneeler, um, just a pew back from the nativity set they had set up. And not coming from a mainliner or high church background at all, um, I had never seen such an elaborate kind of setup for a nativity set. The figurines were about three feet high. There was straw everywhere, like real straw. Um, they looked like handmade structures. And over the course of the night, I found myself staring at that nativity set and this growing sense of longing um, was inside of me. And I started to get this kind of ache because the baby Jesus was missing. And for people who are familiar with Catholicism, you can laugh at how cute I am, but like it was making me really sad. And I didn't understand like, why is the baby Jesus missing? Like, why would you have a nativity set if the baby Jesus isn't there? And I mean, by the end of the hour, now I come from a charismatic background, so dramatic displays of emotion related to church are not unfamiliar to me. But I was weeping and there was no reason to be weeping. <laughs> I did not understand my own emotional response. But there I was, weeping, really sad about the missing baby Jesus in this beautiful dark chapel in the middle of December. And so when we wrapped up, everybody else filtered out into the dining hall where we would play hacky sack and eat cookies. And I stayed there to try to compose myself. And Brother Fabian, who was the German monk that I set this stuff up with, he was maybe 22 years old. He cheated at hacky sack by using his robe. Um, <laughs> We had a lot of fun, uh, but he was also a beautifully generous person. And so he came up and he put his hand on my shoulder and he was, you know, just asking me what the spirit was doing. And I kind of accusingly lit into him a little bit, like, where's the baby? <laughs> like, I don't understand why you don't have a baby. And obviously he was like, on Christmas Eve, our midnight service, we will bring in the baby Jesus and we place it in the manger um, it's a huge part of the celebration, but there is a reason behind it. And then he says to me, in typical generous fashion, that he believes that I have been gifted um, a shared experience with Israel's longing for their Messiah. That he believed that the longing I was feeling was a gift from the Spirit in that moment. And something in me shifted in my understanding of the point of Christmas because I never really understood what the nation of Israel was experiencing as a people in that longing for the fulfillment of the promise of God over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So about 1.30 in the morning, Christmas morning that year, if you could put up the slide, I got this picture in my email from Brother Fabian. Um, he sent it as soon as the service was over, and I have cherished this cheesy picture since 2008. Um, this was probably one of the most impactful uh, Christmas experiences I ever had. And so something in 
coming to understand that longing also helped me understand the significance of what it meant for that baby to first be born, for them to first see that fulfillment in flesh. So I'm going to read a portion of our passage. Lily, by the way, did an amazing job. Um, I don't know if she's still here, but uh, this is going to be from the message, just because I feel like John 1 is a very familiar passage, and I love that, but um, I also love just the slight twist that the message takes with this. So it says, the word was first, the word present to God, God present to the word. The word was God in readiness for God from day one. Everything was created through him. Nothing, not one thing came into being without him. What came into existence was life, and the life was light to live by. The life light blazed out of the darkness. The darkness couldn't put it out. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. There are several phrases in John 1 that actually are meant to take us back to Genesis 1. Um, in the standard translation, John 1 begins in the beginning. Genesis 1, in the beginning. There's an ushering of something new that's happening in the story. The very first chapter of Genesis tells us that in the beginning God created. And then over and over again we have this refrain of God speaking, of God saying, and things coming into existence that hadn't before existed. Atoms and molecules and creatures begin to materialize. Systems are rolled out and structures to keep everything ticking along. Photosynthesis, regeneration, digestive systems. All of these things are put into place through the word, through the spoken breath of God. And then we see God actively breathe into a mound of clay and animate human life that was distinct from everything else that had been created up to that point. Humans were given an identity, we were given responsibilities, and we were tethered to the divine in likeness and in role. That's not to say that humanity was meant to be more important than anything else in creation. Humanity was given a unique role in caring for creation. Life was rolling out, and we were given the beautiful task of maintaining and encouraging and nurturing that life. And then throughout scripture, we see God breathe and sing and speak and roar. Creation and destruction are found in the tongue of the divine over and over and over again. Scott Erickson, in the book that we're using this year, Honest Advent, talks about the Hebrew word ruach that's used throughout scripture. It describes spirit, wind, the dove that landed on Jesus at his baptism, and breath. He says, it's a multifaceted word alluding to the hidden, animating spirit from whom all life emanates. To participate in this world with the seen and unseen is to breathe in and out the air that gives life to our bodies, and with that breathing, to become aware of the spirit who gives life to that deep, hidden side of us as well. So once again, we see this idea of breath and this idea of life connected. So I want you to do something with me. We did this Wednesday night. Um, I promise it's not as weird as it sounds. But if you're able, stand up with me real quick.
Now I want you to wiggle. Like, try to get as loose as you can. We're all stressed out, but, you know, try to wiggle a little bit. Pull your head a little bit, gently. Maybe roll your shoulders back. Now I want you to close your eyes, and we're just going to be quiet for a minute. Just take three breaths in and really feel the breath connect with your body itself. This connection of breath and body, um, this connection of spirit and, and physicality, are things that are really easy for us to lose sight of. And things like breath prayer and, and other contemplative practices help us kind of remember that. But it's that reality that John is revealing to us in the first chapter of his gospel. This same ruach, this breath, this manifestation of divine power that we can only describe as the word because we don't have a better term for it. It was whispered into the belly of a young woman, wrapped in human flesh and frailty, and birthed into the world with all of its musty earthiness and wonder. And that human child would lead us into life. Now, in the Greek, there are several different words for life. Bios is the one that we would think of with, like, physical life being birthed. Jesus is coming into bios life when he's born. But it tells us that he is the life bringer. And that word life is the Greek word zoe, which has this idea of a spiritual life, a soul life, a sustaining eternal life. That is the thing we talk about when we talk about spirit or soul or the part of us that is marked as the image of God, that thing that will in some way, somehow live on after our physical bodies stop. That life, that vitality, that flourishing, that is what Jesus was coming into the world to bring us. So he was gifted bios life so that we could be gifted Zoe life. And how much do we not take advantage of that life that, that he came to bring? And that's not a chastisement. It's a reminder that there is Zoe life available to us because Jesus chose to come on earth as a human. What I eventually came to realize is that Easter only matters because of Christmas. That the miracle of incarnation was the first in a series of never-before-seen events that would change reality forever. And this moment, this incarnation, was the answer to the longing of a people. It was the ushering in of God's answer to their cries, though they couldn't recognize it because it looked so very different from what they expected. The Israelites were expecting a military leader who would come in and overthrow Rome's oppression of their nation and reestablish them as a political powerhouse, as in the days of, of David. They were not expecting a poor carpenter's kid to be born in Bethlehem and then raised modestly. The reality is that the longing that they experienced is not something that we can fully understand because we are not a physical people. But we are in that exact same place of longing. We see the same cries going out for the promise that Jesus is going to come back, make all things new, redeem all things. We are still waiting for that to be fulfilled. We live and breathe in the gap between the yes and the not yet. We are surrounded by the brokenness and suffering and rage and injustice and shame and selfishness of our world. 
And I think for a lot of us, that has become a very heavy reality. Um, we're carrying a lot of that heaviness, more so now than I think ever, at least in my, my short life. We see the crying out and the chant of the protester, the rage of the rioter, needle marks and therapy bills, the eyes of child soldiers, the swollen bellies of those without food. And we're asking the same questions the Israelites were asking at that time. Where are you? Have you turned your face away from us? Have you disappeared? Do you not care? Why aren't you doing the things that you promised? We're asking God the same questions while we're living in the midst of, of holding on to the hope that what God promised he would do, he will do. We, like them, are desperate to see the promise fulfilled. And again, Scott Erickson in his book describes this tension for us in his chapter, Broken. He's talking about the idea of brokenness as a shared experience. So, like, for example, the thing that breaks within you when your child is born. Um, there's a, like a, a bud breaking so that something can grow out of it. Something brand new happens within you. He says, I wonder what was broken in that room with Mary and Joseph. Could it have been the wall between ideology and incarnation? The culture they lived in was layered with centuries of prophecy and expectation regarding who the Messiah was supposed to be and what it was all supposed to look like. And here they were being confronted with the real truth of that prophecy, that the hope of restoration had moved from words to presence. It wasn't just ideas. It was real. Beloved, what we believe isn't just ideology. It's real. He says, isn't that what we're hoping for this Advent? The breaking of the wall between ideology and incarnation, from words to real. Our deepest hope is that God is truly with us in all this. That's what Christmas is meant to celebrate. Could it be that God has been with us in all of this already? Like the Israelites, I believe that the incarnation is already happening in our world in ways we might not know how to recognize. They don't look the way we expect them to. We wait in the tension of the not yet while being invited to participate in its ushering. And that, I believe, is where the joy of Christmas is found, the discovery of the yes in the midst of the not yet. And this isn't just a call to, you know, find a place where you can help relieve suffering. That's important. But this is a call to genuinely look for where you can find divinity wrapped in flesh around you, in the enemy that you think that you have, in the annoying coworker, in your irrationally screaming four-year-old who's mad because you won't let them get in the oven. Whatever the issues are, there is divinity to be found in the flesh that's wrapped around you. And it's not even just humanity, being in nature, cuddling a pet, um, going to a zoo. There are so many places, and I don't mean to minimize. I actually think that God is so around us and so manifest all around us that we just make it too hard to find. And so I really do believe that the joy of Christmas is being reminded that divinity was wrapped in flesh, and that reality changed everything. And where we believed that God was in a temple, we now understand 
because we're told we are that temple. We are the house of the divine. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in as much as we are able to be fish who see water, we are utterly surrounded by the incarnation. As Erickson invites, may we hold in our hands the broken things and find within ourselves the incarnation of God's promise fulfilled. Look to see where God is fulfilling her promises to you now. Look to see where you are already fulfilling God's promise to somebody else. Ask for eyes to see where divinity is wrapped in human flesh and then actually take the time to look and even have the courage to believe. Because in the face of all of the suffering in our world, that can be the hardest thing, is to believe that these things are real, that they are not just ideas. The birth of Christ is a historical event that really happened, but it is an event that is continuing to happen. And it is what we re-remember every year. And so the reason that we're celebrating at this time is because we are stating that we believe that that changed everything and is continuing to change everything until we see its fulfillment again. So that's what I have for you. As I close, I just want to read you something that takes us into Christmas Eve. And it's the perspective of of whatever that thing is, that word, that ruach, that breath, that spirit of God. And so as you listen to this, just imagine all that occurred on that day, the anticipation of a nation and the birth of salvation for all of humanity that had been and was to come. Before any of it came to be, I was there. Before the separation of light and dark, ether and matter, before the mountains were placed or the waters gathered into their boundaries, before the first wing fluttered or low feline growl, I was there. I brought every creative impulse out of the mind of the divine and wrapped it in color and mass. I carried the charge of electric life force from the imagination of love itself into the mound of clay to animate every soul that would come from that time forward. I am the swirl of imagination in every artist's mind, the healing balm in every redemptive dialogue, the shivering chill in every beautiful song, the power behind every revolutionary chant for freedom. I'm in every child's truthful utterance, every earnest prayer, every hopeful promise, I sway through and in and between every breath, waiting for any opportunity to flow through the passageways of God between and within every human being. And now I've inhaled all the depths of creation into my chest, leaned down from the heavens and whispered into the young belly of a poor Jewish girl, still glowing from the excitement of her new engagement. I've breathed all the magic and power and life of God into her womb and sang a new life to be formed. I waited and I've watched as flesh wound itself around the air of my lungs, binding the divine itself up in taut flesh and marrow and bone and blood. I've watched these young human parents struggle with my messages, embrace the call, 
and fall in love with this babe that's growing in her womb. I've called to the stars and they danced into formation, letting men hundreds of miles away know what I was up to. I've beckoned the citizens of heaven to come and sing the song I gave them, and they'll invite shepherds to join the celebration. For now, tonight, once again I wait. I wait to see the fully formed incarnation, all of my life-giving creative power wrapped in the vulnerable flesh of a human baby boy. I am at rest, knowing the word of God cannot fail, and I am trembling because through me, all things are about to be made new. <laughs>